per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Ring a bell? The acronym, PFAS, isn't much help either. You may have heard of so-called forever chemicals, a common name for PFAS. This is a group of chemicals that remain around in our environment, our landscapes, our water, our food, our blood, long after the purpose that they were originally derived for has been served. Increasingly, environmental health advocates are warning that PFAS are inescapable and a daily part of our lives, with many unknown implications to our health. So today, we're talking about PFAS, what they are, why we should know about them, and what's being done to address this growing problem in our plastics and our environment. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies program and the program manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Before we jump into the conversation, I want to remind you that KPFT Houston is currently in our February fund drive. As public radio, KPFT Houston can only exist with your support. Over 90% of our funding comes from listeners like you. If you're enjoying Gulf Streams and want to support our work, please call 713-526-KPFT and pledge a donation. You can make a one-time donation or become a monthly sustainer to support our work. In the coming weeks, Gulf Streams will feature conversations with experts on plastic waste, carbon capture and storage, meat production, and the economics of climate change. If you want to become a station sustainer, ask about our memory bricks, permanent inscribed tributes to your generosity here at the studio. And during our entire pledge drive, every new sustainer pledge at any amount will automatically result in an additional donation of $50 thanks to a generous matching gift pledge. Call 713-526-KPFT to learn about all the unique pledge drive offerings going on this month. We're delighted to bring you important conversations about environmental and climate issues here in Houston and beyond on Gulf Streams and can only do so with your support. So please call 713-526-KPFT. A quick reminder that Gulf Streams is now available as a podcast on all major podcast platforms. So please, if you haven't yet liked and subscribed, go to your favorite podcast app, like and subscribe for us. It really helps folks to learn about it and recommend us to friends. That way you can catch up anytime and make sure that you are in the know on all of the important environmental and climate issues happening in Houston and beyond at all times. Today, we're speaking with Jenny Gitlitz, who is Director of Solutions to Plastic Pollution at Beyond Plastics. Brandy Deason with Air Alliance Houston is back. And Dr. Michael Wong of Rice University, who is a chemical engineer here. And we're going to be speaking through these different uh, plastic and forever chemical PFAS uh, issues that we're chatting on. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, maybe just to start us off, um, Dr. Wong, would you just introduce yourself and your work to our audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Wong. I am a professor here in the Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering Department at Rice. I'm also a professor in chemistry, civil and environmental engineering, nanoscience, materials engineering. Can't make up my mind sometimes. <laughs> um, but basically what I do is to teach chemical engineering, but I also do research in chemical engineering also at Rice. Great. And Ginny, can you tell us a little about Beyond Plastics and your role there? 
Yes, Beyond Plastics is a project of Bennington College. We're effectively a national nonprofit organization and our mission is to end plastics pollution everywhere. And we do that in a variety of ways through education and legislative advocacy um, and public engagement. Great. And Brandy, I think, you know, folks have, have certainly met you before on the show um, and we've talked about Air Alliance, but if you'd just like to reintroduce yourself and tell us a little about Air Alliance's work, that'd be great. Sure, sure. Um, so I'm Brandy Deason and I'm a climate justice coordinator at Air Alliance Houston, and my campaign focuses specifically against chemical recycling um, and um, working to um, end plastic pollution uh, in and around the Houston area. Um, at Air Alliance, we're a nonprofit advocacy group that believes everyone deserves to breathe clean air, no matter where you live, work, or play. So we uh, advocate with community members um, and you know rally behind them and, and go, go take those fights. Great. Mm -hmm. And so uh, maybe I'll go over to, to you, Dr. Wong, and just ask for the, the kind of broad explainer here of what are PFAS? <laughs> what are these chemicals that I think people have probably heard about in the news around, you know, this idea of sometimes being called forever chemicals, thinking about different issues around these, but how are, what are they and how are they related to plastic? Yeah. So PFAS, um, it wasn't a term that was around a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, but it was under a different name. Perfluorochemicals is one, uh, CFCs is another one. But as people started to learn more about the health effects and just where they're located, it became an important topic to a lot of folks, not just scientists, but just mm -hmm. regular folks. And so nowadays it's called PFAS, but we pronounce it PFAS. Um, and sometimes we'll call it forever chemicals. Um, and the reason for that is once these chemicals get out there, it just takes a long time for it just to naturally break down. So these PFAS chemicals, they're out there. Um, they're not out there intentionally. They're just out there because we're done using the things that are made with them. Mm -hmm. And now we're learning that these PFAS chemicals is not one or two or three or five. It's thousands of these structures. Mm -hmm. They're in our water. They're in our soils. They're in our air. It's just kind of everywhere now. And but where do they come from? What, what, I mean, certainly plastic in particular, we're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, thinking of plastics, but yeah, in general, why do these things exist? Where do they come from? How did they get here? They're useful. Okay. That's why we've made them. When I say we, the chemical industry, but this is way back then. This is a couple, many decades ago. And, and these companies made these chemicals because it made things non-sticky uh, things that you can clean well, things that are made out of Teflon. We love using these things that are made out of Teflon, but sometimes things that are used to make the Teflon coating has these PFAS structures in it. And then once you're done using the pan, the potato chips, the food packaging, the pants that you wear, mm. all the things that we like about the non-stickiness of PFAS, that's making those things that we love to use on a day-to-day -day basis. Once we're done with it, we just sort of chuck it out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I will say, you know, I'm not a chemical engineer at all. I am, you know, more of a historian than anything else by training. I, and and my, my concept of time may be slightly different, but, you know, you say these things have been around for a long time, but really we're only talking kind of post-World War II that these have been created and prominent, right? Which actually in my world doesn't feel like that a long amount of time. It's interesting because it's um, it's not the only, you know, unfortunately it's not the only chemical class that's out there mm -hmm. that's, that's found to be later on hazardous to our health and hazardous to our uh, environment. 
It just happens to be the one that is just lingering a whole lot longer mm. in the environment because it's uh, um, just hard to break down the, those chemical bonds compared to these other compounds. And when you say, you know, lingering longer, yeah. what kind of time are we talking about in terms of, of how long that's lingering? Decades. Okay. Yeah. Um, they're finding that these things are in our water soils. Um Sometimes we know where they're coming from. Sometimes we don't know. It just sort of ends up in, in our waters generally because that's the easiest place where it ends up. And um, it's ending up in in our bloodstream. It's in our bodies. And so, I mean, in, in thinking about this, you've already hinted at, you know, it's, it's in our bodies, which sounds terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, I think to bring in Jenny and Brandy a little bit and thinking about this, you know, relationship to plastics what are some of these environmental and health risks, you know, either for PFAS or for plastics in general in this plastic production, you know, cycle that makes these chemicals, among other things? What are some of these health risks that we're thinking of? Why is it so concerning that this material is winding up in our bodies and around us in the soil? I can start if that's all right. Um, Please. The UN Environmental Health Program estimates that there are more than 3,200 different kinds of chemical additives in plastics that are known to be chemicals of concern. And these are these are chemicals that give plastic various attributes, color, flexibility, UV resistance, fire retardants. And many of these chemicals are known carcinogens, mm-hmm. mutagens, reproductive toxicants and endocrine disruptors. The the latter is particularly important. Um, We're learning more and more about how these things mimic our hormones and they disrupt many different um, organs and processes in our bodies. And they can either, they can either migrate directly from food packaging into the contents of the food or drink that we consume Mm. Or they can hitchhike on microplastics and after they're discarded, then they move somewhere else and are eaten and work their way up the food chain. And just as Michael said about the PFAS, uh, these chemicals embedded in the microplastics are also showing up everywhere. They're in the air, they're in the soil, they're in they're in drinking water, they're in bottled water, they're in pretty much every packaged food mm-hmm. and non-packaged food that you can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're in, uh, almost every organ system in our bodies. Mm. And so, you know, certainly the health risk is a huge concern here, but also you're talking about soil and you're talking about other places that this material winds up. And so I'm wondering what are some of the, you know, the non-human environmental impacts of these, of these chemicals? And, and do we have any <laughs> knowledge of what's happening when they, you know, even wind up in landfills or, or go to places that we perhaps don't want them to? So maybe I'll speak a little bit about the PFAS. Yeah. So PFAS is ending up everywhere, but we're still trying to figure out just how everywhere that is mm-hmm. and at what concentrations. And so the data is only emerging now. And so I think the awareness that these things exist out there, that's important. The question about PFAS, is it connected to certain diseases and certain uh, health, toxic health uh, effects? It's starting to come more and more into clarity mm. based on the data that we're seeing. But there's a whole lot that's out there that we don't know. And so it's it's almost, do we wait and see a little bit or do we wait for the data to collect a little bit more or do we try to, um, you know, play it a little bit more safely by maybe using other things besides PFAS. Mm -hmm. As in regards to how it affects the environment, I think one of the big things that we're seeing with PFAS is that once it ends up in the environment, it starts to accumulate Mm. in the animals 
mm-hmm. and the plants that are in the environment. And so the food chain effect, if the PFAS starts to accumulate in this small organism, and then you start to move up the food chain, who eventually at the end of the food chain might be us. And so that's one of the concerns, not just about PFAS, but about chemicals in general. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so on both sides, you know, hearing both from, from Jenny, that idea of, you know, plastics winding up, you know, from what we microwaved when we took out our, our frozen dinner, but also the actual food stuff that goes into the frozen dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just thinking yeah, about more broadly how these build up and impact. So I'm curious uh, in you know, I, I think folks are are probably scared of the idea of these chemicals as it is. You you threw some some dire sounding health concerns at us. What is being to address done to address those? Though I, I think that's a major question most folks have. And I know Dr. Wong, your lab is thinking a lot about this and in ways to to treat and track and think about these issues. Um, so maybe we'll start with you and then move to to Brandy and, and Jenny to talk a little about some of the policy implications. I think one of the major recognitions about all the chemicals that we've made over the years is it's ending up in places it's not supposed to end up. Mm. Um, And I think that recognition has always been there, but I think it's becoming more apparent on a day-to-day basis. Mm. And these molecules could be as simple as CO2 in our atmosphere, could be as you know visible as plastic bags or invisible like microplastics that are in water. Mm. And definitely we can't see PFAS. These are molecules that are too small, but we know they're there because we can measure it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a chemical engineer, we make chemicals because they're useful. Uh, but I would say now engineers in general and scientists, we, we want to think of us as thinking about the whole life cycle of these materials. Not only do we want to make them, we want to figure out how to make sure when they are done being used that they no longer have a harmful effect a year from now, two years from now, decades from now. So now you have a sort of the legacy issue of chemicals from way back that are just out there in the environment. And then there are these new generation of materials that we're much smarter about making. Mm. So the question really is, you know, as scientists and engineers, what can we do about things that are already out in the environment? And then what about things that we want to replace our current use of plastics and even PFAS? So I would say for the things that are out there in the environment, take care of that first because it's out there right now. And how do we actually take care of that? <laughs> what does that look like? What does that mean? <laughs> I would say to use PFAS as an example, mm-hmm. um, there are very simple methods to remove it. Okay. So something like the carbon filter approach. The What, what is that? So, you know, the water filter, the water mm-hmm. pitchers that we would have at home that we would buy uh, to remove maybe the color or the taste and other chemicals, those things are being re-engineered to remove PFAS. Mm. And so the technologies are there. We got to get the cost down a little bit more and got to get this technology more accessible to other folks. It's expensive currently, it right? Expensive. I mean, I've heard of some cities that actually are investing in trying to put this into their water supply and really clean up things, but it's also hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. That's at the right. Time. I think part of it is, is you know, how do you treat the contamination problem in general? Do you mm-hmm. just make something and expect people to go ahead and just buy it? I mean, if you can afford it, great. But if you can't, what do you do? Mm-hmm. So that's an open question. Um, and the economics does play a role in this because someone has to make it and whoever has to make it has to, has to there has to be an economic, uh, uh, um, you know, position for that company to continue to make it. But 
how do you roll out this technology? Do you go for the hotspots or do you just go ahead and go out into all the states or do you go to the communities first? And so the PFAS problem is one that's challenging all of us to think about how do we deploy our technologies? The technologies are almost there. Actually, they are there. It's just expensive right now. So that's one of the things we're trying to do in our lab is trying to get the cost down. Well, Brandy, so, I'm curious uh, to, oh, sorry, I, I, I want to go to Brandy first for a second, just to ask about, you know, you're you're really engaged with community, right? Mm -hmm. And Air Alliance's work is, you know, a little bit to, to riff off what Michael was just suggesting about how do we actually roll these things out? I, I'm curious to hear about, you know, in your experience working with community members, how are you thinking about bringing these kind of technologies in? Or do you hear people who really want new solutions for these issues? Yeah, people don't want um, these contaminants in their environment, and they are looking for cost-effective solutions to do so. Um, uh, you know, we work with mainly with air, um, so that's not really something um, that's super in our wheelhouse, but we work with um, some other organizations that work on water issues, and they're trying to to actually give away water filters that mm. will help with that. So mm. that's what I've seen out and about in the community. They're very concerned and they want to know how do we get that out and how do we not put more back into the environment? Yeah. Right now you can buy these water, water filters that are certified to remove PFAS, mm. but just like any of these filters, if you don't replace it, you know, it's not, eventually it's going to stop working. Yep. So it's really up to the consumer to make sure you replace it. Yeah. And so, but let's say you do replace it. Well, you, what are you going to do with that used up filter? You're just, you're basically going to put it in a, in your trash bin and it's going to go to the landfill and yeah. those landfills are filling up. Definitely. So fast. Exactly. So we're back to our upstream solutions. Yes. Yeah. So, so the question might be, so what happens to the PFAS that's stuck inside these, these filters? Mm. Well, people kind of can guess, but they're just really guesses and they're guessing that it's going to stay entrapped in there forever. Mm. Okay. At least 30 years. Okay. Let's just say, <laughs> <laughs> but depending on where you live in the country, you know, what if, what if you have a heavy rainfall? Yeah. I mean, like in Houston, you yeah. know, it's not the same as they say in Phoenix or something like that, but say in Houston and we have a huge, you know, weather pattern comes in, you know, you have water runoff. Yeah. So water may run off, but how do you ensure water doesn't go through the landfill, get into that filter and start to pull out some of that PFAS. Yeah. And so the, depending on where you are, you are in the country, they have detected PFAS in the water that comes out of these landfills. They call yeah. it landfill leachate. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Small amounts, but it's not zero anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, my, my own thought is, you know, I think you tackle the problem where the hotspots are already known and identified. And they're, they're in the news, you know, they're in Mich like Michigan, you know, different parts of the country where they used to manufacture, you know, mm. these PFAS. And so take care of the problem that is known to be there. And then, because those are literally the hot spots. Mm, gotcha. And then try to roll out the technology to other places that have detectable amounts that may or may not be in violation, but these things are not standardized yet. Mm -hmm. But to get ahead of it, I would say. Yeah. 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 But to destroy it though, I think the question is, if that's the intermediate step to trap it, the ultimate goal is to break it down. Like as soon as you trap it, break it down. And that's what's hard. <laughs> that's what's hard. Do it, break it down. That's cheap, that's safe, and that's easy to use. Yeah. Um, so is it hard to do? Not really. I think we kind of have it planned and mapped out, but it's hard to get it to work 
easily and mm-hmm. cheaply. That yeah. cost thing always comes up at the end. Absolutely. Yeah. What kind what of legislative I... solutions are you aware of, Michael, towards regulating PFAS? No, it's the EPA has put out uh, drinking water standard suggestions for six compounds now. Mm. Um, and it's not locked in yet, but they put out these numbers and these numbers are really low, uh, again, to the order of PPT. And even as scientists, I'm thinking they're really low, mm. but they're set that low because of their calculations they estimate you need to be at that low level in order mm-hmm. to be safe. Yeah. So that's the good news that there is some formula to figure that out. Mm-hmm. But on the practical side, how do you measure it to that low? It's really difficult. Yeah. How do you measure it quickly? That's really difficult. Yeah. The concentrations of these PFAS is lower than the stuff that's already in natural waters. Right. So you're looking for like a needle in a haystack almost. Yeah. That's yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. And I know in the laboratory, you know, we mostly get down to parts per billion. Um, we want to, we need to go lower. Yeah. And we're ha- we're having to go lower for that. Yeah. I had heard a talk from um, an, another uh, industry, um, an environmental laboratory mm-hmm. um, PhD. And um, he was talking about, they're trying to come up with standards to even test this. Yeah. So right now we have it for the water and there's only so many of them that they can do, even though there are hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all about coming up with those laboratory standards and then those ways of detecting it. So they need technology that's actually able to see it at the parts per trillion is the challenge, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. My, my final thought would be, you know, as long as there's sort of consistent support to elevate this problem and keep it elevated, mm-hmm. that attracts attention, that attracts industry to get into it also. Yeah. I mean, and I think... That's what you need. You need that long-term investment to technology develop, the detection, the breakdown, then that gets the cost down ultimately. So. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to remind listeners that KPFT is in our February fund drive. To support more programming, please call 713-526-KPFT. Press 1 for donations and mention Gulf Streams when you pledge to help keep our work going. This work is only possible with your generous support, so please call in to 713-526-KPFT, extension 1, and make a pledge to help keep us on the air in bringing you the most important stories about the environment and our changing climate here in Houston. Jenny, you you wanted to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to ask Michael... um... These water filters, they sound great, assuming that that the cost can be brought down. But how much PFAS are we ingesting from drinking water that comes out of our tap versus through the foods we buy that are um, that are taking up PFAS through the soils? i've I've been reading about um, spreading sewage sludge as as fertilizer on farm fields, which, Sounds like a good idea because re- you're reusing organic matter and mm-hmm. it's better than using um, synthetic fertilizers. Yep. But then these things have been found to contain PFAS just from all of the PFAS in the environment, as you said. So mm-hmm. how how much of our exposure would be limited from these water filters versus what we're getting through our, our food and other pathways? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it's an open question. We can sort of guess based on other uh, chemical classes uh, that people have studied before. Um, I I couldn't guess what the PFAS might be. It could be 50-50, it could be 95-5%. 
I would say water is probably the easiest way that we ingest things. Well, of course, water, but if water is a carrier of something, well, that's going to go right into our gullet <laughs> pretty quickly um, versus the PFAS that might move up the food chain, which takes months and years for uh, for things to move up. So I, I guess it speaks to the larger question about and, and the awareness of this PFAS circulating in our, in our environment. And so we're only now getting a sense of just how much is circulating in our environment. And mm -hmm. so um, with that said, the concentrations are pretty low. In fact, very, very low. Um, and in fact, they're so low, it's hard to detect even. And so that's one of the challenges with regulations now is how low is required to be low? How low is medically safe? How low is economically feasible to treat down to? And so right now, the concentrations that the EPA is looking at is on the order of tens of PPT, which stands for parts per trillion. What's parts per trillion? So imagine a drop of water that you, um, well, maybe a drop of some chemical that you toss into a swimming pool. Okay. okay. Now you take the swimming pool water, take a drop out of that and put it in another swimming pool and then do that a couple of hundred times. Very dilute. And so it's everywhere, but then it might be so dilute that it's almost invisible to the body, but it's not clear what that threshold is. So that's why it's an open question. It's around, just don't know the safety toxicity issues for the PFAS materials. And is there, uh, are there studies looking at the, like the cumulative health effects? Yeah. It's like, you know, maybe my drink of water only has this much in of it, but um, it's in my food, it's in my clothes, it's in my, so what is that cumulative impact? So that's probably something else, I guess we're going to have to look into. Yeah. The EPA office of water, among other organizations have been looking at these health studies and looking at what is the amount of PFAS per body weight. Mm -hmm. uh, and they use that as a way to calculate some amount of, of detectable PFAS in the environment. And mm -hmm. so those regulations are being worked on now and, and there's public commenting periods and, and a lot of opinions and, and scientifically based to determine what is the best number to, to, to shoot for. Oh, and I would also add on to that, right? That we have, uh, I believe, doubled the amount of plastics that we've made in the history of civilization in like the last 20 years or something psychotic. I mean, yeah. it really is a shocking amount. And so, you know, there could be a certain degree that we're like, all right, we don't know exactly what the effects are at this moment, but as we continue to see a pattern mm -hmm. of increasing these materials, it's not like st st stay, uh, uh, Oh God, <laughs> what are the, the pans that, you know, are, what am I trying to say? Oh Lord. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like there's a feature to them that people like, but it's terrible for us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, You're great for making scrambled eggs. Nonstick. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I switched to stainless steel a while back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, as you think of nonstick pants, we think of pants, as you mentioned earlier, right? Clothing. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about just the um, remarkable amounts of plastic waste and the mm -hmm. remarkable amounts of material waste that are being generated. And so, especially as we have, you know, Jenny on the, on the line with uh, Beyond Plastics, thinking about what are strategies because the, the flip of this is that 
these materials are not only not going away, we're just making more of them and finding new ways to make more of them. So Jenny, I'm curious if you want to talk about some of the policy things that you're thinking of and Beyond Plastics is working on to really think about what are ways we can reduce plastic consumption and material creation that becomes these you know, waste pits that we see in these floating islands of plastics and the various other really horrifying um, effects of, of not just PFAS, but also all of these different plastic sources, which you mentioned microplastics as well. And so, I mean, multiple issues going on here, but. Yeah, well, I think, you know, before I get into some of the policy initiatives that we're pursuing, I just want to give people a little bit of an idea of the scale of the problem that we're talking about and to yeah. echo I want to echo what you said about the tremendous growth of the plastics industry. Um, in, in last year, in 2023, about 400 million tons of plastic were produced globally. And that is eight times more than what was produced in 1976 when I was a little kid, when it was only 50 million tons. And it's twice as much as what was produced 20 years ago, or 200 million tons in 2002. So we've got this incredible skyrocketing growth of the plastics industry, both in the United States and globally. And uh, global plastic production and waste is set to triple by the year 2060 under what they call a business as usual scenario. Hmm. So if we don't make any drastic changes into how we're living, how we manage waste, what we buy, that's what we're looking forward to, a tripling of plastic waste globally by 2060. Um, and so, yeah, let's shift to the solutions now. The There are three broad types of, of laws that Beyond Plastics is pursuing. One is bans, where you just put a ban on a certain product that's very problematic, like like plastic bags. Sorry, I just wanted to ask uh, or um, interject on our uh, Texas does not allow bag bans as of 2018. The Supreme Court um, said uh, no to that. And so um, I just wanted to bring that up because I know you had some other solutions or some other uh, points to talk about with that. So apologies for the interruption. No, it's quite all right. I mean, what you're talking about is what we call a preemptive law. And it's, you know, it, it passed in Texas as a response to what's going on in other parts of the country and indeed the world. There are 12 U.S. states and five territories that have completely banned plastic bags mm. and hundreds of cities. And so, um, you know, obviously, Texas is a huge center for the petrochemical industry. So legislators passed a, a law saying you're not allowed to do that here. You mm -hmm. cannot. You cannot ban plastic bags in Texas. And Texas isn't the only state that's done that. Uh, Florida, Arizona, Missouri, many municipalities have done that as well. Um, so one thing you can do is you can try to repeal the preemption. Uh, and people are doing that in places like Michigan, where they have other types of preemptions. And so repeal the preemption. Then the, the second type of, of policy initiative is deposits. And that's where the, the consumer pays a deposit on something that they purchase. And when they're done with it, they return it for recycling and they get their deposit back. So this, this is most commonly known of with beverage containers and mm -hmm. U.S. states and about 50 jurisdictions globally have deposit laws on beverage containers. And 
with a deposit ranging from a nickel to 25 cents, bottle bill containers are returned at two to three times the rate of containers that don't have deposits. So they're very effective by giving people a financial incentive to bring used containers back for recycling. Mm. Um, but they're not a panacea. They're not a perfect solution. They only cover certain kinds of materials and, and certain kinds of products. So what, what's really needed to solve this problem at the top level is packaging reduction. And so there, there are um, many different ways to achieve packaging reduction. Basically, it just means you're reducing the quantity of packaging before it gets manufactured and sold because recycling alone will not solve this problem. There, there are just too many different types of resin, hundreds of types of resin. As I said before, thousands of chemical additives used in plastic products. And these things are not compatible with each other for recycling. Things have to be really segregated and that's very time consuming and expensive and technically difficult. So packaging reduction is really what we need to do um, to attack this problem and be effective. So th there are multiple ways to do it. We can um, pass laws encouraging reusing packaging multiple times, either at the consumer level. For example, uh, washable trays and dishware in a school cafeteria instead of disposable ones. Mm. At the distribution level, reusing packaging involves um, designing boxes and pallets and crates for reuse. We can also focus on refilling bottles and jars. Mm -hmm. uh, Oregon, Canada, and Europe, are they're already refilling wine and beer and other types of bottles. We can also encourage the use of bulk packaging for food, personal care products and cleaning products. Um, certain boutique refilleries have emerged and some more mainstream stores give customers the opportunity to refill, but it's still kind of a niche activity and legislation is really required to, to make it more mainstream. Um, and, and then using um, different material types to move away from plastics to go back to the way things were 20, 50 years ago, where things were packaged in paper or glass mm -hmm. or metal, all of which are quite recyclable. Um, and then finally, there's using less of an existing material to achieve the same purpose. For example, you're making a bottle cap smaller or lighter. Mm. So um, we, we are pursuing... What, what are called packaging reduction and recycling acts in different states. And their bills, their state level bills that would require packaging producers to pay into a fund, which is then used to reimburse cities and towns for the costs they incur at, at uh, curbside recycling and trash management operations, which are all very expensive. Mm -hmm. So not only do they cover the costs and take on some of the financial responsibility for their own waste products, but they're also required to reduce the amount of packaging they make by 50% over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then they have 12 years to, I mean, at the same time, concurrently, they have 12 years to recycle the packaging that's left over.
70% of it. So um, those are some of the policy measures we're pursuing. So something that is, as you were talking about that, that, you know, I think a number of things there, and I love, because I think you know the numbers better than I do, um, but, you know, in thinking about how much plastic actually is recycled, right? It's in the U.S. well under 10%. It's much lower globally. Um, but how does that compare to things like you had mentioned glass and metal? Can you give us a little sense of of the of the difference in scale there? Because the numbers I've yeah. seen from that are orders of magnitude higher. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, glass in the United States, primarily beverage container glasses, recycled at about 30%. Mm. Uh, for aluminum cans, under 50%, which is way better than it is for plastics. As you said, we're yeah. in the single digits with plastics. Uh, for steel, it's very high. It's in 70, 80, 90% because it's magnetic. It's really simple. It's very easy to take out of the trash with a magnet. Um, and paper, um, I believe, is in the mid 70%. So plastic is really the worst performing material of all of the materials that we use for packaging and other consumer needs in this country. I think I, I wanted to pull that out a little bit because we, we did talk about recycling a bit in the last episode, kind of thinking about plastics, but also, you know, it's a, it's a topic of conversation and, and sometimes gets, I think, overly simplified into like, ah, recycling doesn't really do anything. Um, but it really, you know, as these numbers kind of indicate, it's we have to be thinking about what the, the substance is that's being recycled, what we're actually, you know, focusing on, because there's a huge difference between steel or aluminum and how we're treating plastic, um, partially, which has to do with just the amount that's being produced. The other thing that I'd love just to hear from, from anybody on, you know, thinking about, you know, we, we think a lot about social and cultural ramifications on the show and and how we think about society and our role in this. And so you were mentioning, you know, that this tension between here we are in Texas. And so it's worth thinking about that. Yeah, we can't just ban, you know, plastic bags in Texas. Okay. Um, I actually never lived somewhere that there was a plastic bag ban, but I've lived in multiple places where there were taxes, yeah. which, you know, also deeply unpopular in Texas. <laughs> But I will I will tell you from, you know, my anecdotal lived experience, you learn real quick to bring a tote bag everywhere you go. And it's just the social norm. It's really people get very upset with themselves very quickly when they see that seven cents for a bag. I'm really perturbed by this. And so I'm wondering, you know, certainly policy solutions are critical here. But, you know, I, I was hinting a little bit earlier that a lot of these chemicals, a lot of this production really is post-war, is post-World War II, is, you know, the, what we sometimes call great acceleration. And the amount of, you know, we can look historically at this and see throughout the, the late 40s and 50s, there were campaigns to educate people on throwing things away, mm -hmm. that we actually had to teach the public, yes, it's okay to just dispose of something because that was so against how we functioned as humans prior to about 1948. Um, and that's really a remarkably short amount of time mm -hmm. in human history. And so I'm curious if there are certainly policy solutions, but also what are some of the social and cultural things that you can imagine that would help us to move away from some of these substances and some of this plastic production? And you know, even if that's just at an individual level, what are steps that folks can take to, to move us forward a little bit? Brandy, do you want to take this? Yeah, I can take I'll that one. So uh, some steps an individual could take. Um, at my own home, I was able to save money by purchasing a water filter and some aluminum water bottles, and I use those. 
Um, I pick up my groceries where they will allow me to use my um, reusable bags. Mm -hmm. um, I look for those reuse and refill options as much as possible. Um, when I'm at the grocery store, I do everything I can to avoid something that's been packaged um, in plastic. So I stay on the outside of the grocery aisles. Mm. Um, something that like socially, we're trying to get the city of Houston to take on um, a leadership role and eliminate single use plastics from um, events and from city hall in general. Um, and maybe start to do more of a little bit of a public campaign um, to talk to um, the whole city and the, the metro area at large about this because we're running out of room in the landfills mm -hmm. in Houston. And so it's very important that we start to have this conversation um, and that the cities start to model this behavior for its citizens and find those ways to help people achieve this um, while also remaining economical for their family. No, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, yes. and so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in now and and uh, give a completely different perspective from Brandy. <laughs> um, it, it's absolutely great when individuals are are doing the actions that Brandy just just um, ran through, and I, I do the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. I try to buy fresh produce that is not packaged as much as possible. I bring a reusable coffee mug, water bottle, wherever I go, et cetera. But um, it's also really important to recognize that the vast majority of people in this country are not going to do stuff voluntarily. Yeah. And regulation is just absolutely essential to get a change at a scale that's meaningful. Agreed. Um, and just to give you another angle about how serious this problem is. A lot of people don't know that plastics um, produce a huge amount of, of gases that contribute to global warming. Mm -hmm. And uh, we put out a report a couple of years ago at Beyond Plastics where we estimated that the amount of plastics, the amount of plastic waste in the U.S., uh, Actually, let me just rephrase that. The, the U.S. plastics industry was responsible for 232 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions in 2020, mm -hmm. which is an amount that's equivalent to about 115 average coal-fired power plants. And plastics emit greenhouse gases at every stage in their life cycle, starting mm -hmm. from like fracking for natural gas that's made into plastics eventually, the the um, the cracking and um, manufacturing process, and even when plastics are discarded and they end up in the ocean, let's say, mm -hmm. there are millions of tons of plastics that go into the ocean every year. And it's only been discovered fairly recently that sunlight, UV rays, and the physical mechanical action of waves breaks the plastics up and causes them to continue to emit greenhouse gases just mm -hmm. continually. So uh, legislation is really important. And uh, unfortunately, the petrochemical industry, look, they know what the problem is. They know yeah. that a lot of people like the four of us are uh, really concerned about this and want to take action. And so um but they don't want their profits to decline. Mm -hmm. As I said before, under a business as usual scenario, they are forecasting that plastic production 
and waste will triple by 2060. And they are counting on us to, bl they blame the individual. Yep. They, they've done this since the 60s. Weston, you're so right when you talked about the production accelerating after World War II. And, and you know, there's a, there's a fancy word for this. It's planned obsolescence. They planned for goods to be, uh, to wear out and be replaced. Why did they do this? Well, because there was so much leftover industrial production, mm -hmm. all these all these aluminum plants that were built to make uh, metal for airplanes so we could win the war. And then the war is over. What are we going to do with all this? Oh, let's make aluminum beverage cans that are disposable instead of the um, instead of the, the refillable bottles that we've been using for decades and decades. And this happened in every industry. Yeah. And so when when litter started to be really prominent and problematic in the late 60s and early 70s um, and the first beverage container deposit laws were passed, the industry's response was to say, this is an individual problem. Litter bugs litter. Give a hoot. Don't pollute. And they, they put all the focus on the individual. It's mm -hmm. your responsibility to clean up your litter, your waste. Don't look at us. We just We just make the stuff. You buy it. You dispose of it. And they're still doing that today. Um, on America Recycles Day, I'm, I'm using air quotes for that, <laughs> on every November 15th, they, uh, they try to convince individuals and companies to recycle more. I pledge, I pledge to do more. Uh, but these pledges really are not getting us where we need to be. Right. The amount of waste is increasing. And the only way we are going to make a measurable change is through through regulation, which which attacks the problem at scale. Agreed. Yeah. I was wondering, what is the status of bans on PFAS chemicals? It's uh, it's huge pushback from industry, as you might imagine. Um, the U.S. takes a more wait wait and see approach a little bit compared to Europe. Europe wants to ban everything that contains these carbon fluorine bonds. Mm. If you define it very broadly, then you're going to ban just about everything. Gotcha. In the U.S., it's a little bit more, you know, more common sense, I would say, definitions, but you still ban a lot. Okay. And so there's that balance of, okay, definitely stop making those bad stuff, like the PFOA, one of those, one of those molecules. But what about the polymer type of PFAS? Plastics are PFAS if they have enough of these CF bonds. Mm. And so those are useful actually, but do you ban them? Well, if you ban them, well then what are, what's going to happen to the green hydrogen energy, uh, you know, economy, it's going to go, it's going to tank because you need those Teflon, it's called Nafion. You need these Nafion. It's basically like a PFAS version of a plastic to make green hydrogen. Mm. So now there's sort of these implications from a technology side, if you decide to ban, you're going to kill green energy. Or green hydrogen. Green hydrogen specifically, yeah. So, so there's all these implications that people are thinking through. And, and in Europe, they're trying to ban that, but the pushback now, and they're trying to find the right compromise. And they're saying, if you cannot ban it because there's no proper substitute, then we'll make an exemption. Hmm. Interesting. So that's the approach that that I think the Europeans are doing. In the U.S., it's not quite there yet, but I think um, it's still a work in progress. I would say, hmm. but definitely chemicals that are the PFAS that are known to have toxic effects 
Those are not manufactured in the U.S. anymore. Mm, I see. But they might be manufactured in other parts of the world. And then brought in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would say from a technology perspective, I think that if there is a better material that can replace plastics today, I mean, I would buy that for sure. <laughs> and I would make that for sure. No. So I think there is a bit of ways to go to find substitutes for plastics. And so absolutely. I mean, I mean, I can't speak for the chemical engineering industry, but I would say for me, philosophically, I want to keep all my hydrocarbons downhole for as long as I can. I don't need to use it. I don't want to burn it. But if I do need to use it, because we do need to use it, you know, I'm going to do it smartly. And then when I'm done using it, I want that to break down naturally. We can recycle. It's harder to recycle plastics than it is to, to recycle metal because you can melt metal, but how do you recycle plastics of all these different chemical structures? So that's where the technology gap is right there. And, you know, it's going to take some time to figure out the technologies that people will use. So there's that consumer behavior aspect of it, but a material ultimately that can replace plastics, that will get rid of the plastics problem. Yeah. And for now, but, you know, but, but the thing is, we can't just replace things one to one. I mean, yeah. we can't just we can't just say let's replace every plastic beverage bottle with an aluminum beverage can because those are more recyclable. Mm-hmm. Because even though, first of all, only fifty percent of cans are recycled right now, mm-hmm. and they're very energy intensive to manufacture. Mm-hmm. Um, but second of all, uh, all of all of the different materials, like none of them, are impact free. They, they all have upstream and downstream impacts. Upstream means like in the, um, when you mine for the ores or you build a hydroelectric dam to make electricity that powers an aluminum smelter mm-hmm. or you refine chemicals, like every material has its own, has its own environmental problems. Plastics happens to be probably more egregious than most. Mm-hmm. And due to the volume that's produced, it, its impact is greater but it's it's never going to be a one-to-one substitution. There's no unicorn material out there. And, and that's why I keep hammering on, on reduction. Yeah. Source reduction is better than recycling. It's at the top of the waste management hierarchy or pyramid that we've all seen. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm. Haven't, we haven't paid enough attention. There hasn't been enough political will to focus on the best way to deal with things, which is through reuse, we've kind of yeah. given lip service. And and that's why these these bills that we are promoting, these packaging reduction and recycling acts are so important because they're the first legislative mechanism, which is really um, going to impose requirements on packaging manufacturers to use less packaging, do it with less. Yeah. And we're encouraging our community members to, um, you know, sign on to those petitions, sign on for those bills, talk to their legislators, talk to their local leaders, start letting everyone know that's that's running the show that we want to reduce this, that this is the the reduce reuse is going to be the best way, um, as Jenny said. Well, and I so appreciate that balance between the individual action and the larger policy aims, particularly because it's one of the things that I think we've, we've struggled on with this show a lot is you know, folks who, who have a really strong individual desire to, I want to make a difference, I want to make change, I want to, you know, know things I can do concretely in my daily life, which is actually really significant. Um, we do need lots of people taking individual actions towards change. And at the same time, 
we have built a system <laughs> that makes it incredibly hard, as you were saying, Jenny, you know, that's, this is a system not of accident, but by design, it is mm -hmm. something we have built up and concertedly developed to, to encourage people to use these products, to think these are essentials to the only way to exist. Um, and so it really like it, it necessitates certainly individual action, but yes, policy solution and advocacy. And I think one of the most significant individual actions people can take is exactly what you're saying, Brandy, is that talking to legislatures, thinking about, you know, even things at the city level that you were pointing out of what can a city do? What can we do collectively um, to move forward on these issues? So we're, we're about at time. So I would love to thank all of our, our guests for joining us today. This has been a fascinating conversation and really informative. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with our audience. So uh, Brandy Deason, Jenny Gitlitz, and Dr. Michael Wong, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is thank fun. you for having us. Thank you very much. We'll go now to our researcher, Sienna, who has an update on how to get involved around Houston this week. Hey, everyone. This is Sienna coming to you with some upcoming opportunities to get involved. Looking for ways to make a difference in your community? Look no further than Prairie Friday and Stewardship Saturday at Armand Bayou Nature Center. Armand Bayou Nature Center is one of the largest urban wilderness preserves in the United States, boasting 2,500 acres of natural wetlands, forests, prairies, and marsh habitats. With over 370 species of birds, mammals, reptiles, and amphibians, it's a haven for biodiversity right here in Houston. Armand Bayou Nature Center's volunteers are the backbone of their operation. With your help, they can preserve our precious habitats and provide opportunities for people to connect with and understand our local ecosystem. So join Armand Bayou Nature Center March 1st for Prairie Friday. Prairie Friday occurs every Friday. This is the perfect opportunity to dip your toes into volunteering. Tasks range from seed collection to field work and volunteers meet at 8.30 a.m. at the greenhouse. March 2nd is Stewardship Saturday. This happens every first and third Saturday of the month. Whether it's trail trimming, prairie planting, or bio cleanup, there's always something to do. Just make sure to check your email the week before for details on the work plan. The group kicks things off at 8.30 a.m. in the front parking lot. Whether you're into maintaining trails, assisting with plant propagation, or participating in habitat restoration, there's something for everyone to contribute. If you're age 14 and older, you're welcome to join. And if you're under 18, no worries. Just make sure to bring along an adult. And for groups of 10 or more, please submit a group inquiry form beforehand. Before diving into the action, all volunteers must submit a signed service waiver, which you can find and download from their website at abnc.org. Again, that's abnc.org. And remember, closed-toed shoes, gloves, long pants, and a refillable water bottle are recommended. Join them in their mission to protect and cherish the natural beauty of Armand Bayou Nature Center. We can't wait to see you there. Up next time on Gulf Streams, we'll have the next in our series of stories on industrial meat production. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westontea@rice.edu. A quick reminder that you can catch up on Gulf Streams anytime through our podcast available on all major podcast platforms. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. Finally, I'd like to remind listeners that KPFT is in our February fund drive. To support more programming, please call 713-526-KPFT. Press 1 for donations and mention Gulf Streams when you pledge to help keep our work going. This work is only possible with your generous support, so please 
call in to 713-526-KPFT, extension 1, and make a pledge to help keep us on the air in bringing you the most important stories about the environment and our changing climate here in Houston. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies, with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski. Co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM.